Good morning, friends. Good to see you. Glad you're here with us. We're in week two of our Lenten journey. And the, the desire is to keep Jesus in his proper framework, who he is, what he came to do, what he came to proclaim. And we as his followers choosing to always remember who he is to realign ourselves and to reorient ourselves around the priorities and the teachings of Jesus. I wanna begin this morning by looking at Mark chapter one, verses 14, like the second half of 14 and 15. So if you wanna open your Bible app on your phone or open up the scriptures in front of you to Mark's narrative, chapter one, verse 14 through 15. And what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna lean into our vision as a church, which our vision is to be light in the world. That's what we're choosing to be. It's how we're choosing to um, posture ourselves in the world to realize that we are light in the world. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let me read this to you, listen very carefully. It says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Now one of the questions that I had asked last week for us to keep in the forefront of our minds as we step in and practice learning how to walk in the way of Jesus was this question. And I think Jesus asked this same question in roundabout ways through his stories, his parables, and his teachings. And that is this. What makes you think the world is the way you see it? So I, as a 51-year-old white man, overly educated, constantly in a position of privilege, have to ask myself that question in deeply profound ways. What makes me think the world is the way I see it? Secondly, What I want you to keep in the forefront of your mind is when you think about Jesus and you think about his mission and who he is in the world, to ask yourself, are my concepts about what Jesus came to do and who he is and how he lived shaped primarily by my tradition or is it shaped by scripture? And that's another question I think that we have to be honest with ourselves and to say, is my understanding of Jesus mostly shaped by my experience, my my own traditions, the things that have been passed on down through the generations? And if I'm honest, I will say, yeah, some of that is true. And what I think needs to happen is we have got to constantly immerse ourselves in in the grand biblical narrative, the bigger Bible story, so that we're always keeping ourselves accountable as people in the positions that we find ourselves in are we following Jesus or are we following our traditions? And what are more important? So those are a couple of questions that I want us to keep in the forefront of our minds. I wanna give us a quick snapshot from last week. If you missed last week, I began in this journey in Mark chapter one, verse one, which just says the beginning, that's how it starts. So it's kind of a, a nod back to Genesis one, right? In the beginning. So Mark's giving his beginning story. So the beginning of Jesus Christ the good, it says the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now I ask that question, when you read that term good news, what do you hear? And what would Jesus' listeners had heard when he declared that his news that he was bringing, he calls it the good news of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, what would people have heard? And the way that I phrased it last week, well I think it depends on what side of power you find yourself on, how you might hear 
good news from the perspective of Jesus. And the good news isn't declared as good news unless it pertains to everyone. So when a, when a statement of good news would go out to the public, to the whole of public, the, the whole empire, it would be news that is good for everyone. Question then, last week was like, well, did everybody hear it as good news? And did Jesus' own people hear it as good news? We talked about Jesus was Jewish, and within Jesus' own family, in his, his own sect of Judaism, there were four different um, sects of Judaism that were prevalent during that time in history who would have heard Jesus' proclamation and then asked the question, what is this good news that Jesus is proclaiming that pertains to all of us? And those four different groups can be found in all of the gospel narratives, these four different groups that interacted with Jesus, that heard his declaration, that observed his ministry and the kinds of people that he hung out with. The first group we talked about were the zealots, and we had said that Simon was one of Jesus' followers, was a zealot. Zealots were anti-government. They wanted to go in and slit Roman throats. Like, let's, let's rise up, let's get a team of people. God is on our side, God will give us a victory in battle, but let's call up people, let's raise up swords and let's go get them. And yet we see Jesus, when Peter raises his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers, what does Jesus say? Put your sword down. That's not why we've come. We didn't come to raise up an army. And so the zealots would have thought, well, he's nothing like us. So he can't truly be the one that's sent from God above. And so the zealots are out. And then there were the Herodians who buddied up with the Sadducees and they began to play the political game with the power structure already in place. So the Herodians, these, these God followers, along with the Sadducees, these religious people, um, buddied up with politics. They got cozy with politics and thought, well, why would you wanna go against Rome? Rome will crush you, so just play the game. Yes, they're morally bankrupt, but let's not, let's not stir up the pot because then things will go bad for our people. You just have to know how to play the game. And when they realized what Jesus was about, they realized uh, he's not like us. Then there was the next group we talked about, the Essenes, and we discovered that John the Baptist was actually part of this Judaism sect and that the Essenes believed that culture was evil and that you needed to stay away from culture. So you pulled your, your families away from culture, you moved out into the desert, uh, you repented, you fasted, you just gave all out devotion to prayer and worship and reading the Torah and, and loving God through quietness. And so the Essenes realized that Jesus wasn't one of them because he's with people, he's throwing parties, he's turning water into wine, like what the heck? And this, so Jesus isn't like, like them, and they walk away going, well, he's not like us. He can't be the one that God sent. And then we have the Pharisees who always get a bad rap, right? And the Pharisees were purely devout to the law of God and thought that the only way for God to send us a deliverer is if we keep sin out of the community and seek God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and follow the law religiously, follow it to a T. And then when they look at Jesus and they see Jesus and who he's hanging out with and he's breaking all these moral codes and moral laws, they then walk away with the same discovery. He's not like us. I think a better question for us as Jesus followers is for us, Hillside Covenant Church, to always ask the question, are we anything like him? Because sometimes we'll, we'll compare ourselves or we'll look at Jesus and think, well, he, he's not like us in this way, in this way, in this way, but are we, are we a reflection of who he is 
in the world, I think is a better question to ask. Do we practice generosity like we see Jesus doing? Do we practice forgiveness? Do we practice um, going after uh, our enemies and loving our enemies, even the enemies of our nation? Do we seek revenge or do we say, no, revenge is not the way of Christ? We're always holding out for reconciliation as a possibility. We always believe that God is always at work as we just declared in the song and believe that healing can always happen. Jesus then makes this statement past this good news in Mark chapter one, verse 14 and 15, and he calls his news good news. So it's the kingdom of God, he says. The kingdom of God has come near, and this is Jesus' inaugural speech. So anytime somebody's ready to launch a mission or a movement and they get up and they give their inaugural speech, we have to pay careful attention to what this person is saying. So Jesus makes this statement, the kingdom of God is now here. How would people have heard that? Well, Rome, and if you were a part of Rome and part of that system and you were benefiting because of Rome, you may have heard that news, not as good news, but as a direct challenge to the, to the wealth and the power that was currently in play that you might have been benefiting from. And Jesus comes along and says, the kingdom of God is here in an already established kingdom. That is a direct challenge to the current rulers, those holding power over people. So when we read right out of the gate in, John, in Mark chapter one, it's like, Jesus, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that. This is inflammatory language that he's, he's laying out a direct challenge saying the kingdom of God, the empire of God, the rule and reign of God is now here. Everything is about to change and I'm gonna flip everything upside down on its head. How would people have heard that? I thought about how Jesus might use language today and how he might have made this announcement to us. And this is what I came up with. Listen, the kingdom of God is here. The radical revolutionary empire of God is here. Advancing by reconciliation and peace. Expanding by faith, hope, and love. Beginning with the poorest, the weakest, the meekest, and the least. Everything is about to change. It's time for a new way of life. Believe me, follow me, believe this good news so you can learn to truly live and be part of this revolution. How's that for a proclamation? The kingdom of God was central to the message of Jesus. In fact, I think that any gospel explanation or an understanding of the gospel of the good news that doesn't have the kingdom of God intertwined into it is a gospel that's lacking in my opinion. It was central to Jesus' teaching. We see it in how he made proclamations, but he didn't just proclamate, he didn't just proclaim that the kingdom of God was here. He then would step in and he would begin to teach. And he would say the kingdom of God is like this. And he would start to use all these analogies and metaphors and pictures of what the kingdom of God was like and who was in and who was out and who was brought into the kingdom of God, the people that would get it. And then he demonstrated it. So he didn't just talk about it, he then began to demonstrate it and he showed people this is what it's like and he touched people that you're not supposed to touch and he ate with people that you're not supposed to eat with. And he was always pushing out the margins and moving out into those places that were making people uncomfortable. And then he would invite people to participate in it. And many times when we read the stories of Jesus, people would walk away discouraged, they would walk away going, yeah, I don't think I can can buy that, that's too costly. And very often people would then step into the kingdom of God, but they were always the unlikely ones. They were always the ones that you think, I don't, I I could never see that coming. I could never see that person stepping into the kingdom of God and actually helping to advance 
God's rule and reign on the earth. Now, as I said earlier, we're gonna press into our mission this morning. And our mission, after we've done all of this research and listening and praying together, is what? What did we decide? You, you know what it is? Yeah, to be light in the world. Thank you, Francis, because you're on, you're on council. You should know that. <laughs> right? Be light in the world. That's going to start to get into who we are as people. And the way that we step into be light in the world is by practicing and demonstrating and participating in five core values. The acronym LIGHT, L-I-G-H-T. The first one, L, led by the Spirit. Secondly, we want to be a community who are in the Word. And not just the Bible, not just gathering information, but we're in Jesus. Like, Jesus is the living Word. But then we also want to be a people who grow in community. So we, we realize that this isn't just about me. This is not about me just being in isolation, but I, I want us to grow in community. And then the last, last two are honor God through service, that we want to be a people that honor God through action, and we don't just talk about it. And then our desire as we are being light in the world is to transform the world around us because we believe that when we step into the kingdom of God, transformation is one of the marks that happens. So led by the Spirit, in the Word, grow in community, honor God through service, transform our world. Got it? Good. All right. So as we step into Mark and we see Jesus launch his inaugural speech, later on in Mark's narrative, there's an interesting thing that happens. Um, Jesus is coming into God's holy city, the city of Jerusalem, so very significant, and he's riding in on a donkey. Is this a picture of power? A king on a donkey. Not a white horse, but a donkey. And there's another term for it that um, people might use. But he comes in riding on a donkey, lowly, meek. And the people start gathering as Jesus is coming into the holy city, as he's marking, this is what I'm about, this is my posture, this is how this kingdom actually looks. And they say later in Mark chapter 11, verse 10, blessed is the coming of our father David. Now, why are they comparing Jesus to David? David was uh, is one of Israel's beloved kings. He was, he was ruler and reign, reigner of, of Israel during a time of peace and prosperity and a spiritual revival had broken out among the people. And so David is this beloved figure in Israel's history. But why are they comparing Jesus to David? Now let's step back for a moment. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna go up about 30,000 feet. Are you with me? 30,000 feet. And we're gonna hover over God's big story. So instead of we think of Jesus as this kind of separate picture over here. We're gonna put Jesus in God's bigger story, like the whole thing, including the Old Testament, even the parts you don't like to read. The whole story. And Jesus is one of eight significant characters in God's big story. And we're gonna move through these eight main characters in God's story, so stay with me, put on your seatbelts, here we go. The first character is God, you might have heard of him. Second character, Adam and Eve, next Abraham and Sarah, Moses, David, and then Jesus. So let's begin. Genesis chapter one. First main character in the story, believe it or not, God. He's the main character. What does God do in Genesis one? He creates. This is what God does. 
And what does God give to creation? What does he give to it? He sets creation into motion and he gives it fertile goodness, independence, creative freedom, a life of discovery and adventure, and creation full of possibilities. Doesn't that sound good? All those things. But creation is never thought of as something that is completely independent of God. In fact, we see God interacting with creation. He lovingly cares for creation. He participates in creation because God is a relational participant. God plays a role in his own creation. Isn't that amazing? When you step back and you think about it. And what is God's role in creation? Well, scene number one is this. God has established himself as our good and wise king. Now, I'm choosing that language on purpose. God has established himself as, as our good and wise king. The world as we know it, it's all God's domain. God doesn't just live in this building. God lives throughout the whole earth. It all belongs to him. And then these next two characters come into the story, Adam and Eve. And these two characters, these main characters, are made in the very image and likeness of this good and wise king. Now, in some way, somehow, these two characters actually reflect God's goodness and creativity and freedom to the world. They're like a reflection. So right from the very beginning of the story, very early in the game, Adam and Eve represent humanity. So Adam and Eve's story is actually our story as well. We've been created in the very image and likeness of our good and wise King, and we have been given responsibility to be agents of our king, to nurture and care for the earth. We are agents of this beautiful, wise king. Think about it, friends. Taking care of the earth is actually an act of devotion and worship. Taking care of the earth is an act of worship. When you get your hands in the soil and you, you respect the earth and you love God's good creation, that's an act of worship and devotion honoring God through service, as we say, because you're respecting God's kingdom, his domain. And so the story begins in beauty, but then it quickly turns sour because you can't have a story stay in beauty and hold the interest of people. So the, the story quickly turns these two main characters in the story who are actually us, if we can be honest with ourselves, as an act of their own free will disconnect from this good and wise king. And they ask the, themselves the question, you know, maybe we can go out on our own and find an identity and a sense of who we are apart from this king. If we move out of the kingdom and step into our own way of life, maybe we can find a sense of who we are apart from his hands. And as a result of that, as a result of their own free will, moving away and disconnecting, what happens to humanity? Two main things that I think happen. One is we now have broken relationships, if you've been paying attention. Broken relationship with God, with each other, and even with ourselves. And then we also have broken communication between us and God, between one another, and between ourselves. So a major identity crisis rises up. So scene number one, God is our good and wise king. Scene number two, we have a major crisis. So what is the good and wise king going to do now? Will he abandon us? Will he leave us out on our own? Will he destroy the earth and start over? Is that a good plan? Will he revoke our freedom and make us obey him? And the answer is none of the above, right? God does not 
do this. In fact, scene number three comes into play and what God does is he says, I'm actually going to bring together a community of people who are going to heal the crisis. That's God's plan. Bring people together to heal the crisis and he calls a family and through this family, a lineage will be formed generation after generation. He calls people to remember their creator Remember their original purpose, and their original purpose was bring light into darkness. The, one of the first things that God said in Genesis 1, let there be light. That should be like the lights on the dashboard should be clicking right now. Be light in the world. Hey, that's actually not a bad vision statement. We should live into that. In comes these next characters, Abraham and Sarah, the next big players in the game. God's plan to restore humanity, to address the major crisis, his plan is to do it through an elderly couple. Is that a good plan? We're going we're gonna to change the world through our elderly community. Yeah, right. Somebody's, somebody in the house is listening. Good. And I'm going to heal the world through these people. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a miraculous birth through an old couple through a barren womb, which is a major theme in scripture, isn't it? God's like, oh, I see the barren womb. I'm gonna step in, but I'm gonna do it later in the game when it's really, really impossible. And he, and he brings forth the child of promise through this couple that eventually lands with Jesus, which is just un, it's incredible. This is how God interacts with humanity. And as Abraham and Sarah bear a child and they bring life into the world, a whole nation is born called the Jews. Israel becomes a nation and the manifesto of this people is what? Bring light into the darkness. Huh, not a bad vision statement. Bring light into the darkness. And as we move ahead in the story, these descendants of Abraham and Sarah have fallen into difficult times. They've become slaves to an oppressive empire called Egypt. And Egypt is oppressing and pressing down and clamping down on the people of God. And the people of God have been crying out for hundreds of years for God to send them a deliverer. Hear the cries of your people. Hear the misery of your people. And God finally answers their cry by raising up somebody in their own ranks, the most unlikely character in the story, a man named Moses. The sixth character. And Moses is called forth, and he's actually going to liberate the people. So this idea of liberation, or what some call liberation theology, of what Moses does is he brings people out of oppression. And again, we see God not disconnected from creation, but interacting with creation because he's a relational king. And through Moses, through a human, God delivers people from slavery, and salvation comes. There it is. And in order for humanity to get back into its rightful place in connection with God, in right relationship with God, God brings the law through Moses and gives it to the people. And this law is called the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And the purpose of the law is to help reshape the people, form them, humanize them because they've been dehumanized through oppression. And the law is there to restore and actually invite them back in to fulfill their true intent to bring light into darkness. 
and God preserves them after external danger, after external danger, and moral failure, failure within their own leadership structure, and God always is leading them somewhere. It's like God is always out 10 steps ahead of the people, inviting them to come along. And sometimes they come and sometimes they don't. And I see Jesus doing the same thing, 10 steps out. He's like always out ahead of people, about 10 steps, inviting us to come and follow in his way. Love people this way. These are the things that I'm calling you to step into and into practice. God's always leading them somewhere. And then around 1000 BC, the Jews finally reach a time of peace, prosperity, and spiritual awakening. A thousand years. Wow. Now we've got peace, prosperity, scene number four, Character number seven, David, the good king, comes onto the scene. David is gonna lead us. David is gonna help restore us back to who we really are. And does it work? No. The people deteriorate once again. Two generations later, under foolish and arrogant leadership, the kingdom flounders. Civil war breaks out, north versus south. God's people remain under superpower after superpower after superpower. The Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they find themselves being oppressed over and over again. Generation after generation, their hopes and their dreams just lie in the dust, and Jesus is born into this story, my friends. He's born during this time in history. In fact, it tells us in Matthew chapter one, verse two, that Jesus is born during the time of King Herod. Again, all the lights on the dashboard should be blinking. Something's going on here. The author's trying to tell us something of significance. It means that Jesus was born under the dominion of a kingdom, a kingdom which had power over God's people. Now, we don't know a great deal about Jesus' childhood, a few little stories here and there. We also know that Jesus was born through a miraculous birth. I think we can safely assume that his parents thought this kid is significant. There's something about Jesus. He's in God's bigger story. We can't fully understand it, but we understood this kid is special. I mean, like truly special, even more than we think our own kids are special. This kid's special. For example, we see Jesus coming into the temple for Sabbath worship. He's a rabbi. He's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he stands up before the people to read the scroll as they listen, and this is what it says. Listen very carefully in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 through 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim and release the captives, restore sight to the blind, let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then just a couple of verses later, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, rolls up the scroll, and everybody's like, beautiful sermon, right? Beautiful sermon, pastor. That was great. That was one of your best. Oh my gosh. And Jesus is like, they didn't hear what I said. And so this is another sermon for another time. Jesus then goes into a deeper teaching, goes like three or four more verses. The people really hear what he says. And you know what they want to do next? They want to kill him. Then you know you've preached. <laughs> now, now it's like, oh, they, they actually heard. They actually heard the message. Not like, hey, well done. It's like, <laughs> okay. Oh, challenge. Jesus then begins to proclaim what he's really about. He challenges the status quo. He never lets us stay in the comfort zone. He's always challenging us. Again, the question is, what makes you think the world is the way you see it? 
What makes you think it's the way you see it or the way we see it or the way we experience it? How does Jesus see himself? Jesus sees himself in the whole story. He doesn't see himself as a separate entity. He doesn't see himself as somebody just coming to start a new religion. He realizes that I'm part of the, I'm part of the bigger story. I'm, I'm a character, a main player in the significance of what God is doing in the world. And so when we see the people declaring that he's like David, what Jesus is doing is he's, as he's riding into Jerusalem, he's making a proclamation saying, I'm the new David. <laughs> I'm the new David. That's quite a statement. And you remember, under David, the people experienced peace, prosperity, and spiritual awakening. But I think he's doing more than just proclaiming, I'm the new David, because then Jesus starts talking about liberation. Let's just talk about liberation. And he takes us further back in the story, and he says, actually, I'm like Moses, too, because that's where we get that language, that liberation theology. He begins to talk about how we liberate the oppressed and the poor and those out in the margins. And we read about that in, in John's gospel, chapter 13, 34, Jesus speaks about a new commandment, a new commandment. Wh who is this rabbi and what is he doing? And then in Matthew chapter five, which is Jesus' kingdom manifesto, in verses 21 through 48, he keeps saying this, you've heard this, but I tell you this. You, you've heard this, but here's what this means. Here's the true intent of the law. You've got it wrong, so I'm here to tell you this is what it is, the full purpose of it, the full intent of why I've come. What is he doing? He's revealing to the people, I'm the new Moses. He's giving the people a new law, a new way of posturing ourselves and living in the world. And what does he do? He calls 12 disciples. That's his plan. And he challenges them to do what? You are light in the world. Be light in the world. And then he calls these disciples to multiply so that they're making other lights in the world who will bring light into darkness. What is that, friends? That's the call of God's people. It's the original purpose. Jesus is the new David. He's the new Moses. He's taken us back to Abraham and Sarah, the 12 tribes of Israel, and their purpose was to be a blessing to all nations, to all people. And he calls 12 disciples and also women, right? He calls men and women and empowers both of them, not just men. Again, Jesus challenging the system. Women are a part of my kingdom, and women will speak prophetically, and women will be primary in the kingdom of God, and they will be able to teach and lead wholeheartedly. Okay. He then calls us to do the same, to be light in the world, to heal the nations, to restore creation. What's he doing there? He's like the second Adam. He's identifying himself as like this primal kinship with all people. But he doesn't just take it that far. He doesn't just sit with zealots and tax collectors. He doesn't just sit with the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. He also sits with prostitutes and drunkards, all the people that you're not supposed to be with. And he sits with them and he touches them and he ministers to them and he, and he loves them and he embraces them and he calls them to come and follow him. He's challenging all of us to step back and look at the bigger story and don't pull Jesus out of the story because if we pull Jesus out of the story, we come up with some really wacky conclusions as to what Jesus came to do. So we have to be really careful not to take Jesus out of the story. And we see Jesus fully immersing himself in the story and challenging all of us to step back into the practice and the rule and reign of our good and wise king. And what does Jesus do? He heals the sick. He raises the dead. 
He performs exorcisms, because that's part of the kingdom of God. He confronts injustice after injustice. He even interacts with nature itself, and when nature is out of control, Jesus speaks and nature obeys him. He calms a raging sea. What is he doing? He's reversing the curse. And ultimately, what Jesus is doing is he's identifying himself with one of the main characters in the story, character number one, and that being God. And we see Jesus saying, I'm God in the flesh. That when you see me interacting with people and loving people and forgiving people and setting people free, that's what God is like. You wanna know what God is like? God is like this. When we see Jesus, we see God. And through Jesus, God's like, I'm launching a whole new world order, new creation. This is how it works. And if we pull ourselves out of the story, we start losing the plot and we start arguing about things that don't really matter. We've got to keep ourselves in the bigger story. Now let's step back for a moment even further. Jesus makes his kingdom announcement and what kingdom is currently in power during this time in history? Rome. Once again, under Rome, rule and reign, people are experiencing peace, prosperity. Rome is expanding. Wealth is increasing. Their military presence is the most powerful in the world. It appears like Rome has achieved the end of history, but they're doing it through coercive force. And all of this is because the Caesars continue to insist that they are the divine presence of God on the earth. We are the sons of God. Follow us, praise us. We will lead you to peace. And here's Jesus. Hmm. No military presence, no weapons, no wealth, no land, no home. He raises up 12 disciples. He includes women, travels from village to village, speaking to peasants, urban poor, the unemployed, homeless, disabled people, social outcasts, and he's relational with all of them. And he stands in solidarity with them. And I have to ask myself the question, are we anything like Jesus? Are we anything like him? How does his kingdom actually advance? No violence, no bloodshed, no hatred, no revenge. In fact, this kingdom actually advances under the surface through things like yeast and seeds and weeds. It's so weird. (laughs) And it advances when we step out and we risk and we lay ourselves out and we're people of great faith. It advances when we forgive, which we'll talk about next week. You may want to miss that one. It advances when we actually love strangers and we love our neighbors. It advances when we actually love the enemies of our nation. On the surface, this doesn't sound like a revolution to me. It sounds really weird. How is this gonna heal a broken and chaotic world? The question I ask you, friends, is what we are currently doing, is that working? Can hate conquer hate? Can war cure war? Does pride overcome pride? And does revenge overcome evil? The kingdom of God is the way to be light in the world. Jesus is our good and wise king, leading us, 
leading our church, not a pastor. Your pastor is not your savior. Jesus is your savior. He's our leader. Doesn't matter if I'm here or if someone else is here. It doesn't matter. Jesus is our good and wise king. He's the one we follow. He's the one we submit to. He's the one who we allow and say, Jesus, lead us. We'll follow you wherever you ask us to go. We choose to submit and surrender to you. I'll leave you with this question, my friends, one more time. Are we anything like Jesus?